Thank you for tuning in to the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave, where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. How's everybody doing? Good, good. How are you? How's it going? Uh, it's going okay. Busy week. How? What? What's everybody been up to? Got any projects going on? James, what have you been up to, pal? Oh, man. I had the fortune of finding a sweet metal cabinet on Craigslist. Guy's clearing out his shop. Uh, I need to get ready to do some weld repairs on my Crescent Universal. So I haven't welded since college, and I found a metal cabinet that I'm going to turn into a little welding station. Um, so I have all my supplies showing up for that. The uh, cabinet is – I had to – blast all the casters because they were all seized um so now it's finally rolling and it's in the corner it's ready for me to do some welding so that's what i'm doing in the shop right now it's just getting that that side of the restoration world ready what about you you better hope it's not a craftsman cabinet or uh or you might have a visitor in your shop to come and steal it away i'm I'm coming i'm coming to get it no no this thing weighs like 250 pounds and there's no marking on it at all the guy wanted to make a smoker out of it it's got industrial casters with with grease fittings on it uh that's awesome yeah it's old it's super rusty and kind of gross so i'm gonna have to clean it up uh ultimately i just want something to ground so that i uh don't have to clamp on every tiny little piece that i'm welding as i'm building an assembly so right and i can throw my stuff so i don't end up driving over it when i try and park my car in the garage We'll put a we'll put a link onto our or picture of that thing up on our Instagram page. It's pretty oh, yeah. cool. It looks like it's safe just from eyeballing it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's got a lovely patina. Oh, lovely patina. Something that some people will disagree on: getting rid of the patina versus keeping it. Yeah, sure we'll, we'll talk. Do. We'll talk about that. Yeah, actually, surprisingly, uh, people in and outside the restoration world all said to keep it. I think it was like sixty or seventy percent said leave it alone. So I'm gonna I'm yep. gonna uh, wash it and knock off everything super loose and gross, and then I may go over it with like a Johnson wax, um, just to make it look nice. I just don't want anything to burn, and then uh, I'm gonna like inhaling some awesome cancer chemistry. Oh, nice. Well, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it only makes you stronger. Just remember that, folks. That's right. <laughs> All right, Evan, what are you up to? Well, uh, I recently acquired. The king of Athol vices. Hold on, Dave, Dave and I need to do a, a, a golf clap. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This was a big day. Whale of your yeah, the white whale. So I, I got this Athol vice. It's the number six twenty eight. It's got eight inch jaws, three hundred and six pounds. So I've been working on that, and tonight I actually took it apart and got all the parts separated. And I'll save I'll save my comment for the. The tip of the day, which is coming up here, but uh, dealing with castings that are, that are 160 pounds a piece is uh, is something, and you gotta you gotta be prepared for that. So coming up, stay stay engine, tuned for the. Do you have your engine crane in the basement? I do, I do. I have enough room to, to get it around and work with one of the uh, the workbenches, and that's that's what I've been doing. So I've I've been lifting it up and and moving stuff and taking it apart with the engine crane, which has been very helpful because doing it by hand is not is not the best so that's what i've been working on i'm very excited to get that going but dealing with heavy castings is is a pain sometimes but i'm excited for it 
Yeah, no send... doubt. Heavy captions are brutal. Did you take a picture uh, with your, your biggest and your littlest, Athol? I did. I did. I have the photo. Uh, we can post that up to our uh, Instagram at the Restoration Podcast. Um, we can get that up there so you guys can see it and you can follow along with our restorations because, um, you know, we're coming together to work on uh, this, this podcast and talk about things. But we're also having our individual lives. So we'll kind of bring that together and, you know, put some snapshots of, of what we're doing uh, with our restorations on our Instagram. So be sure to check that out. That's yeah. right, folks. It, uh, I think the associated quote with the photo, if I recall, was, Mommy, teach me your work-holding ways. This is yes, it work. was. It was. <laughs> I, I was going to say I was gonna say you could say Apple with Apple for scale. Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, the biggest is eight-inch jaws, and then the smallest one has an inch-and-a-half jaws. So it, it's, quite a, it's quite a difference. Quite a, uh, quite a range of products they offer. It's, it's impressive to see the two of them together. It's really it's, it's interesting. Um, speaking of heavy castings, yeah, I've been playing with uh, my Chandler and Price company guillotine paper cutter. This thing is from like 1905. Every sing- I don't think there's a single part on it, uh, save for the fasteners that weighs less than 80 pounds. Um, and I spent the last few days uh, taking the thing apart, which has been a absolute chore. The thing sat out in the weather for uh, at least a decade, I want to say, in a dilapidated building with a leaky roof. And um, it was a chore to get some of the close-fitting parts apart, but... It'll all be worth it in the end. I've got a cool picture. I did like a, what do they call like the flat lay? Hashtag flat lay Friday. Took a picture yeah. from above of all the parts. Yeah. That was a great, be that up was a great shot. It, Thanks. Dude, Thanks. it was a beautiful shot, and it caught me off guard because most of those flat lays are like bench tops. And, you know. Yeah, small things. There, there was nothing for scale. And then I realized how high up in the air you got to take that. And all I can think about right. you being a firefighter is your buddies are at at the station and they get a call saying idiot taking photograph dies at the scene of a, a flat leg cast yeah, iron yeah. project. Yeah. And if you guys if you guys be- don't know Dave, like he he was probably hanging from the rafters in his building taking this photo. I wish there was a photo of him taking the photo because it was probably equally hilarious. Oh, man. I was standing on top of a little giant ladder that I had kind of set up an A-frame configuration, and uh, it wasn't... The thought of me falling off the ladder, because I have fallen off of that ladder before, uh, was not <laughs> far from my mind, but hey, listen, it's all its all for the art, baby. You gotta do what you gotta do, you know? So. I, figured, I, Absolutely. I figured you put on a climbing harness and like hoisted yourself up on that uh, crane, that clean evaporous chain crane, and we're just You're giving me weight man. <laughs> I don't think I, I, don't, I don't I have very little safety equipment in my shop I just you know I go by the whole you know imagine the uh, black hawk down the finger trigger squeeze this is my safety you know oh, that's my man. kind of attitude oh, so that's and it's probably going to bite me in the butt one of these days and it has in fact in the past but you know hey listen all right. DM. all right guys so, so we're working on our we got our projects our individual things so what uh Let's roll into the tip of the day here. What what are we guy What are you guys thinking for the tip of the day? You know, if you had to say something to our listeners, what what would you go with? Oh man! So one of my favorite restoration tips, and I figured this out just kind of um, I don't want to say by accident, but I was restoring old rifles 
Um, really cool if you want to buy an old r- rifle that's in like crusty, rusty condition. International Military Antiques, IMAUSA.com. They sell guns that were in long-term storage in the basement of a Nepalese castle or or, or palace for like 100 years. They were packed in yak fat. Anyway, I restored one of these rifles. And in order to preserve some of the metal on the barrel, to get some of those rusty pits opened up, I used a uh, piece of brass. Actually, what I did was I took a shell casing, an empty shell casing, of course, and I hammered it flat, and I turned that brass into a scraper. And so the whole point there is when you're scraping something, if you don't want to mar the finish, you use a scraper which is softer than the metal which you are scraping. Nice. So I use right, a right. soft brass scraper to pick those pits apart and to you to scrape off any nasty debris, and uh, a shell casing made of brass is perfect for that. So that's my tip. Brass scrapers, excellent. Do you have to worry about... Um, the brass transferring into the harder metal, like into any of the voids, does it end up coloring or? It does sometimes, and you'll you'll like smear some brass on the surface, kind of like it almost leaves like it can almost be like a crayon when you're when you're pushing it. It's not that soft; that's an exaggeration, but it'll leave a brass smear behind, which you can remove with some solvent. It's really not. There's like a, any kind of gun solvent will get rid of uh, those soft metal. Um, leavings nice, nice. yeah I've, good I've seen people heat up their metal and then use brass brass wires to give it a color texture yeah it leaves the color there that's that's a cool process well uh if i had to suggest something that's actually hit me this weekend um living in upstate new york january it's usually no no warmer than 30 but we had a freak uh 60 degree day on saturday and Same down every, here. Every single thing in my garage was condensating and sweating its butt off. It was no. awful. I mean, you just walk into the garage and you could feel everything was 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 damp. And uh, so the tip of the day is if, if you got a surface you cared about and you cleaned up, it is worth going and spritzing it down with some WD-40. Or um, I guess there's, there's quite a few different brands of, of things that are... Uh, anti-condensation uh, or um, uh, rust preventatives. But if you live, sure. I mean, if, if you live in a, in a place where it can heat up or cool down quickly and your, your uh, metal can't change temperatures as fast as the weather, you're going to get moisture on your, uh, on your tools. So if that's important sure. to you, yep. tabletop surfaces, especially joiner surfaces, things you want true and flat and clean and smooth, definitely worth putting some wax or some wd-40 or, or some some rust preventative uh when it's not in use Excellent. absolutely all right so i mean i guess i have a, a tip and a half now because i'm, I'm going to continue just a little bit off of what james said now lucky for me you know my my tools are in my basement so and i, and I do have heating and cooling in the basement which is which is a godsend in the summer and i also run a dehumidifier now i don't know how that would work in a garage but i do run a dehumidifier in my basement and it does help keep the moisture out of there um because you know it's not the the best insulated thing in the world but it does it does keep the moisture out of the air and i i empty that bucket you know once a day pretty much and all that all that could be going all over my tools and it doesn't so i I think that's that's a good thing to have you know depending on your situation um running a dehumidifier can help a lot as well 
So my actual tip is, you know, I talked about in the beginning, I, I got the new um, Athol Vice, you know, with the super heavy castings, we're talking about 150, 160 pounds a piece. My tip of the day is having a plan to move something heavy. So you need to have a plan, nothing like being stuck where you're trying to lift something or move something around and you get stuck and you don't have help and you end up dropping something or something breaks and you just have a bad day. So you have to have that plan. And luckily for me, I do have an engine crane in my basement, which makes things a whole lot easier. So if you have that option, make sure you have a plan, at least a, like a chain fall or a jack or a hoist of some sort. And they come in all shapes and sizes, depending on your situation. So that's my tip of the day. Have a plan to move something heavy so you don't get caught and don't get stuck in a situation where something bad can happen. Precise, proper planning prevents poor performance. Yes. Always have. <laughs> so, yeah, no spoilers because there's a special events on the horizon that all three of us are working on. But it's all going to come top down secret. to how, top secret. It's all going to come down to how well I can pull off my planning in the next week, potentially. So make or break me. We're going to have some good stories here shortly. But we make sure... Make sure to stay tuned, though, because you're not going to want to miss it. Yeah, either this is going to be the most glorious story of all time, or you guys get to enjoy Dave and Evan chewing my ass out. (laughs) This is a a story, this is a fairy tale of tool acquisition, and we will say no more than that. But this thing is big. It is big. Yeah. It is like a sculpture. It's going to be insane. Ah, ah, I'm nervous. We'll There's see a possibility. We might not be able to pull it off. Yeah, yeah. Not to not to hype it up any more than it is, but yeah. Well, the the goal is to pull it off and not end up with a flywheel like your printing press. Absolutely. Let's talk about poor poor planning on my part. I, I thought that my one thousand pound you know rated or my one ton rated uh, uh, cherry picker engine hoist would be able to support a three thousand pound machine and. I, uh, yeah, it didn't work out so well for me. We'll talk more about that at a later date. So, <laughs> not, not to quickly change the subject, but so listen, today's topic, here's what we're going to talk about. This is our, this is our discussion topic for the day. We want to talk about the, we're going to talk about why you would want to restore old tools. We're going to talk about some history. We're going to talk about, um, changes in quality over the years, the changes in, in, uh, the business models of some of the tool companies over the years and kind of give some perspective as to why we think it actually matters to take the time to restore old stuff. Why not just buy a new whatever you want? Why not just go to the big box store and, and buy what you need? Um, so let's let's jump into it. Um, so I, I would start out by saying I think I like I like restoring old tools or I think it matters. I think it's important because the quality of the tools that were built uh, in the the generation of our grandparents is significantly higher than the tools that are made today. The quality is far superior. Um, and by putting in a little bit of time and a little bit of elbow grease, you can have a far superior product to something that you could buy at a store today um, because they're built differently. They're just the tools are just built differently. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to go I'll go off of that, uh, Dave, because 
you know, we're, we're talking about the time period. I mean, we do have machines that go back even further than World War II times. Um, but I think that World War II was one of the one of the biggest, you know, kind of like a defining moment in the the craftsmanship, because, you know, we had we had our soldiers over there fighting on on two fronts. You know, we had a European front. We had the Pacific front and the people who weren't a soldier or working in the military, they stayed home and they took care of the factories. They took care of all the jobs that all the soldiers vacated when they left. And they knew that they had to take care of the men and women who were serving overseas. And they took pride in that. And I think that's a big thing. They were, they were super excited about making the best product that they could for the soldiers. So that all sure. that went all the way back to making machines to make the weapons, the bullets, the uniforms, everything that they needed. And it, it just the precision there and keeping the quality top notch is what drove that. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, sure there was a lot there was a ton at stake. I mean, imagine the the fate of the free world was resting in the well, was you know you don't you don't want to say it was resting in the hands of the men in the factories, but you know I mean there was uh the the, the fate of the future of the planet was kind of up in the air, and right. these guys wanted to support the soldiers as best they could by making quality tools, machines, etc. Yeah, so, the way the way I try and make it real for me. As a as an engineer in an environment like that, is if, if I'm not the one fighting, I'm definitely not going to be the one that wants to design some design something that has a margin for error, uh, or is the reason why a factory has to come down for uh, long term maintenance when are the goods that you're producing are so relied upon, and that's why you'll see some of these machines out of World War Two and World War One uh, even that have some ridiculous design factors. That that's why the the thicknesses of casting um, are the way they are. I mean, cast iron is significantly cheaper than carbon steel. Um, it's a For lot sure. more. It's a lot more friendly on the uh, manufacturing side. I mean, the ease of machining for cast iron is is good. It's got good vibration dampening. Uh, the one thing it, it's not good at is impact resistance. Um, but it's cheap, and so you'd see. Uh, that we the country was trying to save money, but not trying to make cheap tools. And so when you have that that balance, you end up making things extremely robust. I mean, you're talking one, two, three inch thick castings where a uh, carbon steel equivalent would be, you know, half inch or less. And and that sure. stuff, uh, when taken care of, is the reason why you know shop school at high schools and college still use these machines and why other countries can pick up hundred year old tools and turn them into their manufacturing processes today. Right. And going, you know, going off of that, I think, you know, we just discussed, you know, why we have the quality in the machines is because, you know, people were, they cared about what they were doing and cared about taking care of the soldiers uh, when they were over overseas. And, these these tools after the war there were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of tools of all shapes and sizes lathes milling machines every tool you could imagine and they were basically being dumped into the market 
at, at pennies on the dollar, you know, basically for free, you could go somewhere and pick up whatever you wanted for, for not that much money. And even today, even after all the scrap drives, even after all the, you know, getting rid of things, plants closing down, there's still thousands of these items. Now there are items that are particularly rare, um, but there are still a lot of these machines out there and they are available at relatively cheap costs like they were back uh, when they were first made, yep. um, which, which is a great thing for us. It, it's funny because you, you see the end of that war period with the decline in what those machines were making and a whole industry set up on making those machines. And you can look at the advertisements of the, the 40s and 50s and 60s uh, really making a hard push and spin for having, you know, tools of your own at home to do those same types of craftsmanship uh, efforts to improve your daily life. Uh, right. And I really think there was a push by big manufacturing to take that workforce that was uh, so akin to making production line tools and finding a new market for it. But inevitably, that same market also is going to want even more cost savings and they aren't going to use it in a production setting. So from from then on in the history standpoint, uh, you know, while there's a lot of complaining to be had that newer tools just don't have the life and the, the substance of the old one, they were going after a new market for, for that money. And uh, for tools that see a lot less wear and tear uh, and for a customer that, that may not need to make, you know, precision military equipment the the market kind of met that new demand and and that's where you see a shift and kind of the leaving behind of of the the large and industrial and robust to the more family friendly smaller unit and uh, even the consumable uh mentality that you know by the time you've used up the useful life it's it's on to uh the next better tool that'll improve your home shop but also really kind of feed the machine and have those those tool companies continue to be able to churn out new product. Sure, and let's not forget about plastics and stamping technology and different things that have come in to make the machines lighter and to make them um, uh, cheaper to assemble, cheaper to manufacture. They're able to make things of similar structural strength out of lighter weight materials. And with that, they just don't hold up as for as long. You, you're not going to be able to beat on a plastic part for 40 years of day in day out use and then be able to rebuild it and restore it. You can't fix stuff like that. It just isn't lasting as long. So, Absolutely. you know, that's something, you know, as far as from a, a longevity standpoint, you're not going to be able to take a tool like that and, and refurbish it, rebuild it. Some of those parts are just completely clapped out by the time they've, they've gone through their service life. They just get thrown away. There's, and you know, that's kind of a segue into, the, with with the advent of plastics and lighter weight materials, we've kind of transitioned to a bit more of a disposable society than we were during that kind of golden age of of tools and of, of equipment and products that just lasted and lasted. Absolutely. I mean, don't don't get us wrong, guys. You know, out in uh, in listener land, there we <laughs> we don't th don't think that we're we're the kind of guys that if it's not 80 years old and weighs 7,000 pounds, we hate it. Because we, we really don't. I mean, we love those things, but all of us use new tools. We have new things, you know, 
We oh. have stuff made out of plastic. We have stuff made out of all the newest materials. And I, I think every every restoration person has that as well. And they sure. are useful. But I think one of the big things for me and getting back to, you know, why restore an old tool is how does the user interact with it? How does it feel in your hand? How does it feel to use? Um, and, and one of the biggest things for me is, you know, just having having that old iron in your hand, you know, interacting with it and in a sense, you know, feeling the history and, you know, feeling, feeling the history and, and interacting with it. It's just, it's a great, it's a great feeling. Plus, plus saving those tools for future generations is, is one of the, the biggest pluses for me. That's, that's why I do it because I know that these tools are going to far outlive me and I want to make sure that they're around for years to come. So that, that's one of the biggest biggest parts for me sure yeah i mean it is you no know, evan does appreciate a strong piece of steel in his hand you know that's uh <laughs> there's, there's so many there's so many jokes and and and, and we, they've all been told a million times but you know there is something to that you know you feel something you have a a solid well-made tool that you know your grandfather or his grandfather or his or his father may have used there's something satisfying about that about operating that same piece of equipment, especially, I think even to take that a step further, it's it's a mu even more satisfying to take something that is almost trash picked from that same era, completely inoperable, com spend uh, a certain amount of time and energy and, and, um, and uh, out of your day or out of your weekends to get that thing up and running again, and then to use that to do productive work, that is very satisfying. For sure, for sure, 100%. Yeah, I, I really like finding those tools uh, and in a, in a modern society these days, everything is so well documented, so well critiqued. Uh, you've got a review for everything online, on Amazon. But when you go back to these tools, the only documentation sometimes you get is a few catalog articles on how it's going to change the world. Uh, but nobody really has that perspective for how that tool works. And that's what gets me excited is kind of giving some of those really old tools kind of a new light to, to show that, hey, this is still something real. This, you can hold this in your hand. This can solve a problem and do a job. Uh, it, you know, it, it won't compete with modern tools from at least a website hit perspective, but it, you know, it's it's kind of a romantic thing to say, hey, this existed and it, it had purpose and it solved real world problems for real world people. And you can do that again with, you know, a little bit of effort and, and understanding. For sure. I mean, going going along with that, there's also the the beauty factor for me. You know, sure. Does a tool work? Does it do what I want it to do? That's a big thing. But also the, these old tools, vices, drill presses lathes they're they're beautiful if you look at the castings if you look at the way they were made people took a lot of time and spent a lot of effort making wooden patterns getting these things ready making the castings and something now where if they were to build a similar machine you know where you could just use a piece of angle iron and a piece of plate to mount a motor that will work perfectly fine but back in the day you know, they would make a nice cast base for it, have elegantly sculpted legs, and, and it's just, it's a beautiful machine. It's a, and it, it adds to that, that aesthetic 
Have you guys seen some of the old machines that have like hand painted um, pinstriping? I have there, oh. like especially planers. I've seen it a lot on planers. Yeah, and some of the big old uh, bandsaws were all the edges. That's incredible. I, I, it's so beautiful to see that. Like someone actually took the time to hand paint that on there. It's yeah. just a level of crap that you just cannot see anymore. It's just cost prohibitive, you know, unfortunately. Yep. You know, another thing I think is interesting, too, is like the machines back, the tools and machines back then were made to be user serviceable, which I think kind of lends to them being restored as well. I mean, imagine some of the stuff you have today. They're packed full of sensors and technology. If you wanted to have to look at by someone that was competent enough to, to fix it, You'd have that's two or three phone calls. You're taking it to a service center. You have no ability to have any kind of control over your own stuff. And I think part of it for me, part of the stuff for me too, is like I'm I'm basically a layman. I'm I'm a firefighter. Like I'm not. I have some technical or have some mechanical aptitude, but I'm not a trained guy. I can't open up a drill today and service a microchip. But if I had something old, one of these older things. I mean, hell, the the manuals for these came with replacement parts diagrams that you know you could send. Uh, you could you could was it mail away? You could mail away for the replacement part. You send a couple a dollar or whatever it costs in a in an envelope, and they'll they'll ship it to you direct. Yep. Uh, and that that is just lost in today's today's uh, consumer product market. I mean, really, I I think they've tried intentionally to transfer a lot of the the repair and maintenance stuff back to the manufacturers this is another income that wasn't something that was even um i think conceived of back back in the olden days and um that lends itself to the average joe uh being in control of his own things and maintaining his own stuff and fixing these old tools and bringing them back to life himself even without a lot of know-how yeah i'll throw in a, a quick war story i uh uh using a hand push snowblower my briggs and stratton a couple years old Picked up some gravel and basically uh, got one of the augers stuck. Some of the internal components uh, busted. But all the parts websites you find, you have to buy things as full kits. So I had one busted bearing, one busted flywheel. But to put it all back together, the only way I could buy it was, you know, three full kits that cost me a couple hundred dollars for really three parts that by themselves maybe were in the, the tens of dollars. But that's just how it's all kit and sold these days. So... Yeah, that's just the modern life, the modern world we're in. And actually, it's really interesting. I read a book um, uh, called Machine. Uh, what was it called? Uh, work Shop. It was called Shop Class for Soulcraft or Shop Class as Soulcraft. Basically, the guy goes into the details about how he quit his job as a banker or something like that to become a, a motorcycle mechanic. But anyway, he talked a lot about some of these in intentional processes or intentional efforts over time to make machines harder to work on talking about moving easily user serviceable parts of engines and cars deep within the car so they have to be taken apart at only at a manufacturer and i mean look at your average plastic injection molded um tool today a lot of these just you can't work on them there's nothing that you can fix if it breaks it's you know right back again to the disposable society when it stops working the way it used to work you throw in the trash and you buy another one I can. I think the three of us can agree upon we don't. I'm we're not really proponents of that, and so um, right. that. I mean, in a nutshell, is why we restore old tools because you can. They just keep on chooching, you know. Yeah. yeah. 
some of my grandfather's tools are the most special things I get to use uh, for solving little home projects. And nothing gives me, you know, big warm and fuzzies like the idea that I'm taking care of a tool that my kids could use or their kids could use and maybe think of me or, or even think of a generation lost at that point. Absolutely. So to sum Evan, it up here. Yeah, I was going to say, Evan, this is this is your realm here. Take us home. What 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 do we take away from this? this All right. Yeah. So to sum it up, you know, get quick couple quick takeaways. You know, we're talking about why restore these old tools. We talked about several things. You know, we talked about the history you know, how they were made, you know, beautiful castings, you know, taking pride in your work and making sure that it's going to last a long time so you can produce quality parts for a long time. And, you know, just interacting with that history and becoming a part of it, you know, even though you weren't there when it was made and you weren't there for all the history and all the parts that it was uh, made on those machines, you're still there. You're creating your own history with it. And it will last outlast even you and it will continue on and maybe end up in a junkyard again and somebody else will find it and bring it back to life after you. And I, th I think that's the greatest thing. So, you know, summing it up, restoring old tools is, is a multifaceted thing and it ultimately comes down to you and, and what you get out of it and how you interact with it. And there's no right or wrong way for that. And, you just got to make sure that it's pleasurable for you. You enjoy it, whether you like it for the history or you like it to use it or you like it just because of what it is. All right. So, Dave, what's your takeaway from this episode? What do you want people to remember? Yeah, I mean, restoring old tools is a uh, valuable, valuable pursuit. I think uh, with the, the amount of time and energy you put into restoring something old, you will get right back out of it in terms of satisfaction create something that's usable and useful um and um it's just it's great to bring something back to life that's been neglected uh these old tools that were made so well back in the day are still hold their value they still hold their usefulness with a little bit of tlc you can create something that is um absolutely worth worth using bringing back and um and something you can continue to enjoy even after many years of uh neglect how about you, James? What's your what's your final thoughts on this episode today? Um, kind of to the history standpoint, when you when you find tools like these, they they were designed for a purpose. They were used for a purpose. A lot of them have history. So uh, that the best thing to do is talk to the people that when you find these tools to see if you can gather that information. And just the way they were designed, they were designed to last for us. Uh, and for us to be able to service and continue using and be part of that tool's history and pass on to the next generation. So it, it is completely counter to the way products are developed in our modern day. And, and it's special to be part of something that was meant to include us from so long ago and for us to take care of and uh, provide for, for future folks to enjoy and to use. Yeah, so my, my final thought here before we finish up is, you know, something, it's, it's simple. It's a pretty simple thought, but you got to have fun. If, if you're not having fun, what are you doing? If you can't have a laugh, uh, you know, you got to find another pursuit because restoring these tools is, is, is fun. I enjoy it. We enjoy it. I know everybody does. And we want to make sure that 
you know, you have fun. It's, it's something enjoyable to you. You don't, you don't want to be doing it if, you, if you're not enjoying it. So make sure to get in contact with us uh, on our Instagram page, which is at the Restoration Podcast. And you can also email us at the restorationpodcast at gmail.com to make sure you get a hold of us there with questions or if you have any issues or just to see what we're doing because we're going to be posting pictures of upcoming uh, things and making sure that we get stay in contact with you. So we appreciate your listenership and thanks for tuning in to the Restoration Podcast with James, Evan, and Dave where we restore yesterday's tools for the craftsmen of today. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Good night, guys. Peace. This was a huge mistake. <laughs> My brain is like, oh, there's old tools. They're they're good for tools. Keep it light. <laughs> Keep it light. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was good though.